This is my Bible. God's written living word to me. It tells me how he thinks. It describes to me who God says I am. And reveals to me what God says I can have. Because it's how he thinks. I choose to believe and act on what I'm going to read. And therefore I am transformed. It was uh, Stephen Colbert, an American comedian and political satirist, who coined a word during a segment on his program called The Word, known as truthiness. Truthiness. It was his pilot episode of his political satire program called The Colbert Report, and it, it launched on October 17th, 2005. That word actually became word of the year and was placed in the Oxford Dictionary. Here's the word, truthiness. The belief in what you feel to be true rather than what the facts will support. Now, the new Oxford Dictionary, word of the year for 2016, is post-truth. And it means relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. And isn't that exactly what we just went through in this election cycle? <laughs> it's not about facts. It's not about events. It's whoever could make the best emotional appeal. But we sure, you know, that's got to be right because it appeals to my emotions. I submit to you the same thing happens in the church of Jesus Christ. We develop our theology around what we believe, what we want to believe is right, what we feel in our emotions should be right instead of what the Word says. I want to talk to you for a few moments about releasing our spiritual authority. And I submit to you that we are accountable for our own lives as partners with God. So there's a danger of two different extremes here. Number one, finding a devil behind every doorknob. Oh, this was Satan. This was the devil. That was Satan. The devil did this. The devil's chasing me. Or like Flip Wilson's old comedy act. The devil made me do it. You remember that? The devil made me do it. Christians are fond of blaming the devil for their problems. The other extreme is assigning to God control that he hasn't taken. God is sovereign. God did that. That must have been God. Well, you know, the reason I'm sick is because God wills it. The reason that car wreck happened is God wants to use it for his glory. Really? <laughs> so see, there's two extremes. In the sovereignty of God, he just does everything. He's in charge. You really don't and aren't accountable for anything because, you know, God, God's going to do it. God's going to oversee it and make sure that it happens according to his will. Or the devil's involved in everything that's bad. And actually, what we need to be more aware of is this space between these two ears. 
Paul said it this way. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3 and 5. You have it on your outline. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not fleshly. They're not carnal. They're not of the flesh. But they have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And we take thought every captive to obey Christ. Did you notice how many times the thought life is referred to in that passage about spiritual warfare? I want to get the devil off the hook this morning. And I want to quit ascribing to God things that he must be controlling, that he, he left to you and me to be accountable for. This phrase, the weapons of our warfare, it's only used twice in all of the New Testament here and in 1 Timothy chapter 1. This word warfare that Paul used here means campaign, not an army, a campaign. Now, we've just been through a campaign, haven't we? Hmm? And those of us who listened carefully and were smart about our vote listened to ideas and we voted about and for ideas based on principles in the Word of God, not on a personality. Because, boy, if you leave it up to the personality, there wasn't a good choice this election. I don't mean to offend anybody, but be offended. <laughs> be offended if you voted for the personality. Because, dear ones, principles trump. Excuse me, the pun, <laughs> pun not intended, but principles trump personality. Platform trumps personality. All right? So Paul here is dealing with a principle called warfare. He's not talking about going out like an army, trying to be an army. In fact, he says, look, these weapons I'm about to describe to you, they're not fleshly. They're not carnal. They're mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. This word warfare is also used in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 18. Paul writes to Pastor Timothy, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you might wage the good warfare. How do you wage a good warfare? According to Paul, speaking to Pastor Timothy, by the words that were spoken over you. Recall those, bring those back, and start rehearsing those ideas, those words that were spoken over you by the Holy Spirit using an instrument. That's warfare. It has not been uncommon and unpopular in this whole thing of spiritual warfare for Christians to even rent planes and fly over cities declaring and pulling down strongholds and helicopters, you know, get in a helicopter and fly around the city for an hour pulling down strongholds. 
And you completely miss the point. Completely miss the point. Strongholds are not some sort of super spiritual, supernatural power or principality that's up in the air someplace that you need to pull down, that you need to sweat, that you need to, through self-effort, go after. Strongholds are right here between these two things. Paul called them arguments, opinions, Things that exalt themselves, raise themselves up against the knowledge of God. And then he said, you take those thoughts captive. He didn't say get in helicopters and fly around the city trying to pull down. Dear Lord Jesus, help us. We act so, we get crazy with scriptures. And, And so we miss it. We ascribe to God control he hasn't taken. And we blame the devil for things. He hasn't been anywhere around, and we miss the point that the real stronghold was right here. Look at me. And we needed to take control over those thoughts. This term, casting down strongholds, means to take down or to tear down walls and buildings. It's actually a metaphor carried over from the Roman armies who often, when they were trying to vanquish an enemy, would have to tear down various rock forts or fortresses, rock by rock, until they could get into the fortress and take captive the inhabitants. Now listen to Francois Dutrois in the Mirror translation of the Bible. Quote, the dynamic of our strategy is revealed in God's ability to disengage mindsets and perceptions that have held people captive in pseudo-fortresses for centuries. Every lofty idea and argument positioned against the knowledge of God is cast down and exposed to be a mere invention of our own imagination. We arrest every thought that could possibly trigger an opposing threat to our redeemed identity and innocence at spear point. The caliber of our weapon is empowered by the revelation of the ultimate consequence of obedience to Christ. Here's the big idea, everyone. Your redeemed identity is actually the source of your spiritual authority and victory over spiritual darkness or the devil. Let me give you something else. Here's some good biblical theology about an appropriate worldview. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them have complete authority over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the cattle, and over the entire earth, and over everything that creeps and crawls on the earth. God gave authority over the earth to man. And then man abdicated. Think about it. What was one of the temptations that Satan brought to Jesus when Jesus was fasting for 40 days and he was out in the wilderness? Do you remember? It was the final of three. 
Barb, I'm going to need some help with that. What was that third temptation? Does anybody remember? Satan said, Jesus. And he turned and he said, look at all of these kingdoms of the world. He said, if you will bow down and worship me, I will give you power over all the kingdoms of this planet. For it has been given unto me. Where did he get it? Where did he get it? Where did Satan get authority over all of the kingdoms of the earth? Since in Genesis 1.26, when it all started, God gave it to man. How many of you have ever looked at your insurance policy carefully and noticed that there's a line in there called Acts of God? You remember reading that? So if you live in a floodplain and your house might be wiped out through an act of God, they're not responsible? That's where a lot of Christians live. Well, I'm not responsible for this in my life because that was an act of God. I can't change this. That was an act of God. I can't do anything about that thing going on in my body. That was an act of God. I can't affect that in my job, my career, my finances because that's something God wills. Excuse me? I am responsible for my life as a partner with God concerning the principles he has put into the earth and said, Jeff, I've given you authority over the earth. I've given you authority over all of the bugs and the animals and everything else. You know, one of the reasons why we sense such a draw during worship here, why we want to enter in and there's everything from tears to falling on our face to running around to... This isn't entertainment that you saw this morning. This was someone taking authority. This was a whole group of vocalists taking authority and singing with authority about the kingdom of our God and his reign. And when you vocalize that, when you give breath, to the kingdom of God and his reign, then his power in partnership with your words goes into action to change what's in the heavenlies. Get out of your helicopter. Start, start, stop sweating and complaining about spiritual principalities and start taking authority over those imaginations. Scripturally, we just read it. Some of these things have been strongholds in our minds for decades. Decades, as we read the definitions here. Decades, these things have been in our minds. And, and so we're out there trying to fight the devil and blame our flesh and, you know, this and that. And we need a miracle. <laughs> no, you don't need a miracle. What you need to do is get diligent and be responsible for your thoughts and pull down decades worth of strongholds of wrong thinking. I'm trying to tell you how to release spiritual authority. See, you thought I was going to talk about something different when I announced that title. 
You thought I was going to talk about how to chase devils and cast out spirits with a word. And... Mm. Well, Pastor Jeff, I don't know if I like this if it means I've, I've got to have responsibility for my own thoughts. <laughs> I don't know if I like this, if it means I have to start applying the Word of God as a principle rather than a feeling of truthiness, rather than just pretending through truthiness in a post-truth error and society that we live in. It's creeped into the church, and now because it feels good or doesn't feel good, we base our theology on that rather than on the Word of God. See, it feels good for me to be able to blame the devil. It, it appeals to me emotionally if I can blame it on God and His sovereignty rather than having to take responsibility for my own thoughts. See, it feels better. It's called truthiness. Let me give you another big idea then. Wrong concepts about God based on our religious, emotional beliefs or personal experiences which have twisted our identity will prevent us from walking in the fullness of all that God has for us. And God's already decreed it. God's already declared it's yours. And yet we don't walk in the fullness of what God has purposed for our lives because of these strongholds, these wrong concepts, our own religious feelings about what should be true. Now let's talk about spiritual authority because there really is such a thing as spiritual authority. You, the Bible says, have been given spiritual authority over an enemy. Luke chapter 10 verse 19. Listen carefully. I have given you authority that you now possess to tread on serpents and scorpions, and you have the ability to exercise authority over all the power of the enemy, that is Satan, and nothing will in any way harm you. Here's what Weiss' translation of verse 19 says, Behold, I have given you the authority to advance by setting foot upon snakes and scorpions. Here's the Aramaic, watch this. I think this is in your notes. And over all the power of the whispering enemy. Satan doesn't have any direct control over you. He's a seed merchant. That's his only power. He's a seed merchant. He comes and presents thoughts that we have to then accept and put into the fertile soil of our own heart and mind. And if you leave it there long enough, it'll become a stronghold. And that is what Paul was referring to in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 about pulling down strongholds. How that God has given us divine weapons, not carnal, to pulling down these strongholds. Yes, we actually do have authority over the enemy, in any way that he might present himself. Think of it this way. The, the power company, most, for most of you probably Excel, Excel Energy, right? The power company has the ability that they're in partnership with you. They've made an agreement to bring power to your house. Isn't that right? 
Tyree, you did not have to go out and dig trenches and lay your own wire or string anything up to the house in order to get power to turn on lights and your stove, did you? Now let me ask you something. After you got into your house, you got everything unpacked and night fell and you needed some light, did you call Excel? Why not? They're the source of the power. <laughs> what are you doing there, brother? Would you stand up and please show everybody? See, you can't do something like that in my church and not be called on. Just watch this, brother, right here. What do you have to do when night falls and it gets dark? You got to turn that switch on. Why? Because you're a partner with Excel. You. You've got to turn the switch on. And as night wears on, especially in the fall and winter, it gets a little chilly in that house, doesn't it? Do you call Excel and ask them, tell them, complain? Excel, you know, my house is getting cold. See? <laughs> They're liable to turn your account off. We've got a crazy person over here <laughs> and turn you into the police. What do you have to do? You have to go over to the thermostat. Adjust it to the temperature that would be pleasing to you. The temperature that would be pleasing to you in your house. Not my house. Because the temperature you want in your house is not the same as what I want. Aren't you thankful that God's grace is so abundant that he gives us personal choice to make responsible decisions for our own house of what we would like, what we want to believe him for, how we want to walk, what kind of church we want to go to. What kind of things we want to listen to, where we want to, want to spend our money, who we want to vote for, or what, more importantly, what we want to vote for. And God says, all right, I'm in partnership with you, but you're going to have to adjust the thermostat to get the heat up to the temperature you want. And it's no different in our life with spiritual authority. Luke chapter 4, verse 36. All the people were amazed, and they said to each other, What is this teaching? With authority and power, he gives orders to evil spirits, and they come out. Luke chapter 9, 1. He called the twelve together, and he gave them power and authority over all the demons. Some would say that this was delegated power specifically as a special assignment and not meant to be applied to Christ's followers in this time. Really? Here's the problem with that argument. Jesus said, greater work shall you do than these because I'm going back unto my Father. Jesus didn't actually do all the outstanding things that still are being done on this planet of exposing God's grace and love for the human race. Jesus just scratched the surface and said, I'm going to go away and then I'm going to send another comforter who's going to use all of you as a temple and he's going to flow through you and he's going to continue to bring the revelation of God's love and design for the human race onto the planet through you. And secondly, the book of Acts is called... The book... This is not a joke. I'm not trying to catch you. You know, sometimes I do that. I realize I try to... This, you know, I'm being as sincere as I can be. The book of Acts is called the Acts. Morpho, look it up. If you got a, if you got a paper Bible, you'll see it's not just Acts. What else does it say? The Acts of who? Of Jesus? 
No. The acts of? The apostles. Of the Holy Spirit? No. The acts of? Well, we prayed and we got before God and we said, God, we just give this all to you. Lord, do with it what you want. You know, you turn the light switch on, you adjust the thermostat. No, it's called the Acts of the Apostles because it was the Acts of the Apostles who were filled with the Holy Spirit, understood their spiritual authority, got on the platform, some of them, started shouting and praising God and bringing heaven down in their meetings because they believed about singing and proclaiming the kingdom of God and Jesus' rule through their song services. And that's what we experienced this morning. That's why it's so powerful. That's why it makes a difference like it does. Now, Let's touch for a few moments on the New Testament, because everything, practically, everything I've said about spiritual authority over the last five minutes has had to do with the ministry of Jesus and the authority that he gave his apostles and his disciples, disciples, his followers, over uh, spiritual, the spiritual enemy, our spiritual enemy. We, we have that power too, but it's changed the need to use it in the same way has changed because of the New Testament revelation. Here, it's changed because Jesus died. He was buried and then he was raised. See, if that hadn't happened, we'd still be operating in the old covenant. If Jesus hadn't died, been buried, and risen again, if Jesus had not been raised from the dead, we'd still be functioning in the old covenant, which is where so many Christians live their life. They live by commands and Old Testament do's and don'ts and how that if, if I do this wrong, God's going to curse me. And if I don't do this, he'll remove his blessing. That's all Old Covenant because in the New Testament, blessing comes before obedience. Oh, you didn't hear me. I said blessing comes before obedience in the New Covenant. Now, this whole thing with spiritual authority has changed since the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Watch this now. This is absolutely foundational for you to understand about how to release your spiritual authority. Our redemption has changed everything about how we use our spiritual... I I need you to repeat that with me. Say it after me. Our use of spiritual authority has changed since our redemption in Christ. Join me in looking at Colossians chapter 2. Now, these couple of passages that I'm going to bring out were of such a length that I did not include all of them in the paper that you have. Now, I have written down all of the verses so that you can refer to them later. But then I went through and picked out a portion of them for your handout. But I will read you the entire thing that's referenced in your handout. Here we go. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. You ready? And you who were dead. Stop. Who's that talking about? How many of you watched The Voice, that, um, that program on television? That, uh, what do they call those? Programs, reality show, show. yeah, and it's a singing competition. Uh, How many of you are familiar with this uh, country coach? Uh, What Blake? Blake Blake Shelton, a country star. He's one of the judges. All right, he does something with his finger. 
during the uh, process of trying to get people to choose him out of the four coaches. Anybody know what he does? What's he do? He just holds his hand still and goes like that. Right. So I want all of you to lift your hand. Now do that. As I read this, watch this. And you, you, who were dead in your trespass. Okay, you can put your hand down. And the uncircumcision, because it's going to change. We were dead, but it's changed. And the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us of all of our trespasses. Past, present, and future, all my sins are forgiven. Now watch. By canceling, here's how he did it. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with all of its legal demands, he set it aside and he nailed it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in it. That's why I don't get in helicopters. That's why I don't rent planes and fly over the city and try to do spiritual warfare and battle against demon spirits. Why? Because he already did it. He conquered all of those forces, those rulers and authorities. What did he do? He disarmed them. Remember I told you that Satan doesn't have any direct access to you? He's just a seed merchant. How many of you know what a straight jacket is? All right. You have to put your arms either behind you or in front of you. I forget, maybe in front of you. And then they put you in this jacket and they buckle it from behind and they put crazy people in there. And, you know, because they're, they're har- they do harm to themselves. Right? There's a spiritual component to this straight jacket thing analogy. All right. So uh, he, he says, he disarmed him. Well, I want you to, it's the closest thing I could, could get. I want you to picture Satan walking around in a straitjacket. He has no power. He can't grab you. Oh, the devil's after me. Oh, what's he going to do when he gets there? No, really. The devil's after me. Really? Well, what's he going to do when he gets there? I don't know. I never thought about that. But he's after me. (laughs) The Bible says he's like a roaring lion. It doesn't say he is a lion. He's like a roaring lion. What's he telling you? His bark is louder than his... His his bark is bigger than his bite, as the cliche says. So he's like in a straitjacket. He has no power. He can't literally grab you, change your life, make your life worse for you, uh, cause your finances or career to bottom out. He can't steal your children. He can't ruin your marriage. The devil doesn't have that power. He can do one thing. He still has a mouth. He can speak. He can sow seeds. He can suggest ideas that then if we plant them in the soil of our heart and our soul, our mind, our will, our emotions, they become strongholds. You know what he does? He goes off to Tahiti. He leaves. He goes on vacation. His job is done. He suggests. He sows some seed. You accept it. You plant it. He takes off. He's nowhere around us. Why? Because Jesus disarmed him. 
he actually has no power except the power of suggestion. That changes this whole thing of spiritual warfare. Now, I want you to listen to it from the translation called Weiss. In fact, I'll start with another one. Here's Weymouth's translation of just a part of it, not the whole thing. And the hostile princes and rulers he shook off from himself and boldly displayed them as his conquest. I have a question for you. If Jesus has displayed all of the devil's minions and all of these spiritual hosts of darkness as his conquest, what are you doing talking to him? What are you doing having sessions trying to cast them out? What are you doing written airplanes? What are you doing taking oil and putting it over the doorposts of your house? Now, I, chances are there's at least two or three of you that have done this. And you're going to get mad at me. All right, well, get mad and then get over it. All right. I'm just telling you, if the Holy Spirit directly speaks to you to stick some oil on the wood frame of your house, you know, go for it. Be blessed. That might be a point of contact for you, just like the apron that Paul carried on his body, and it got the anointing in it, and then they cut it up in little pieces, and he sent it to one brother that was ill, and the brother got healed off of a little handkerchief that Paul was carrying on his body. I believe that can happen. But that's not the standard. That's not the principle upon which I live my life. I don't try to get in a meeting where they're cutting up handkerchiefs and, and, and the anointed speaker of the hour has been carrying them in his pocket, you know, and then it hands them out for 100 in the offering plate. Hands them out if you'll write a check for 500 Oh, I don't know. I thought that was a pretty good point. See, because you put your faith in a piece of handkerchief rather than the kingdom and the king. And I'm telling you that the devil has nothing to do with all of that mess that you're running from because Jesus disarmed him, made an open show of him, triumphed over him, publicly paraded him in the streets is the Roman idea of conquest. When Rome would conquer an enemy, they wouldn't kill all of them. The weaker men and the women and the children, those who didn't die in battle, the Roman army would bring them, they'd open the gates, and they'd take a whole day just marching through the streets of Rome with the conquest, walking behind them in chains. That's the very picture used here of what Jesus did with Satan. He has conquered him, disarmed him, walked him through the streets, publicly on display. He has no power, no authority in your life except the power of suggestion that we give him. Mm. Now, listen to it from the Weiss translation. Having obliterated, having obliterated the handwritten document consisting of ordinances, the one which was against us, which was directly opposed to us, 
And he removed it out of the midst with the result that it is no longer there, having nailed it to the cross, having stripped off and away from himself the principalities and authorities, he boldly made an example of them, leading them in a triumphal procession. Wow. And then you know what he did with each of us? He took me and he took you and he said, here, come sit with me right next to me. Even better, he, he indwells us by the Holy Spirit. But positionally, in terms of all these powers and authorities, he said, here, Tyree, come, come sit right here next to me. Because you also are over all of this. Let me show you. You are seated with him. You have it there in your handout. And I just, I'll, I'll read a couple of these scriptures here. Ephesians. Look with me. Ephesians. Chapter 1, starting in verse 16. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. He wants you. He wants to open our eyes, pull back the curtains, and have us see something. What is it? Having the eyes of our hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable, read it, greatness of his power toward us who... Sir, you said it right here just a moment ago. You've got to turn on the switch and then believe. You see, this is available to every person, but it only works for those who go over to the light switch and turn it on and believe. So look at it with me. He says, to us who believe according to the working of his great might. I told you it was a partnership, didn't I? It's not my ability, it's his. Isn't that right? It's not my power, it's his. Are you listening to me? It's not my ability, it's his. It's not my power, it's his. I'm not the source, he is. But just like the light company, I've got to use it. I've got to engage it through my faith. So he says, the greatness of the power toward us who believe according to the working of this great might, which he worked in Christ. Watch this now. I want you to look at it. Which he worked in Christ when he raised him. When did this happen? When he raised him from the dead. When did it happen? When did he work this power? When, when now? And he wants to open our eyes to something, and he wants us to see something that happened when Christ was raised from the dead and seated him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named. Not only, not only in this age, but in the, say it, world which is to... Well, see, this didn't just apply to the apostles. This doesn't just apply to the early church and Christians who were there and walked with Jesus. This applies to the body of Christ worldwide. Everyone. Are you seeing this? Well, help me out. Are you seeing this? I just need to know you're getting this. Okay. Watch. Here's where he seated him at his where? Right hand. Where's that? In heavenly places. Where's that? 
far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And what? And he put all things under whose feet? Whose feet? I'm not trying to trick you. He took all of those powers. He took all of the things that Satan used to be able to do in the earth and he destroyed it. He triumphed over it. He disarmed him. He took him through the streets and made a public example of him in the spirit realm. And then he sat down at his daddy's right hand and all of that spiritual dominion, power and authority and darkness is under his feet. Read verse 23. Well, the end of verse 21 says, And he gave Jesus to be the head of all things to the church, which is his, say it, body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. That means if you are a pinky. I mean, if you are the arm, if you just consider yourself the armpit of Jesus. I'm just the armpit of God. I mean, if you are a scab on the heel, I mean, I'm just trying to bring it down to what Jesus probably doesn't have scabs. I mean, his feet are perfect. You know, whatever causes scabs, Jesus doesn't have to wrestle with that, you know. So you're not going to have a business when you get up there. But I mean, you know, for the sake of illustration, if you are a scab on the right foot of Jesus, you are above all principality and power and rule and dominion and darkness. What are you doing? Holding conversations with them, trying to cast them out, running them off, confessing the devil's after me. What? Where does the battle exist? Between here and here. Ephesians 2.6. Look at this. And raised us up with him and seated us with him. Mirror translation says, as much as we are co-included in his death, we are co-included in his resurrection. We are also elevated in his ascension to be equally present in the throne room of the heavenly realm where we are co-seated with Jesus in his executive authority. We are fully represented in Christ Jesus. And, and Francois Dutrois goes on to just suggest this interpretation of that. Watch this now. Listen, because I, I don't know that I included it here, and we're going to close. And, and I made it through about a third of my outline, so this will be a series. <laughs> There's just no way. He says, and I quote, Our joint position in Christ defines us. This can never again be a distant goal to reach through religious devotion or striving, but it is our immediate reference. The only sweating I ever want to see you do again spiritually is when you are trying to keep up with Tyree and his group up here. Did you see Tyree? He just sweats. I said last week, that's when you know you're worshiping God, when you're just rolling down. You know, he just sweats. He just, he just batting his. I love that. 
Now that's the kind of sweat I want to be involved in. See, that's the kind of sweating I want to do. But I am not sweating over the devil. The devil's not chasing me. He has no power in my life, no authority. He can't affect your finances. He can't destroy your marriage. Quit talking about that like he did. All right. All he can do is use the power of suggestion. We need to stop. We're not going to go any further.